gracious God, we come before you again and this morning thanking you, Lord, that you allow the cross to be fresh again, that you allow the truths of Calvary, the magnitude of your great love, which is shown in full degree, the righteous blood, that crimson flow, that rained down from Calvary to wash away our sins and to purify us from all ungodliness and unrighteousness to sanctify us to the truth of the gospel, to set us apart where we will worship you now and we will worship you forever and ever. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we don't even know the half of it, that we haven't even experienced half, we haven't experienced hardly any of your grace. Lord, we have been saved and we are being sanctified, but forever and ever our hearts will be expanded as your glory is made known in greater and greater magnitude, as our minds are blown away, as our hearts are filled with awe and wonder at all that was accomplished at that moment at the cross. Father, we come again thanking you, Lord, worshiping you, bowing down, praising you, and yet, as always, asking you, O Lord, for more. Asking you, O God, to let us know more of your grace, to let us know more of this magnitude of the cross. Lord, we thank you for this time today. We thank you so much for our church. We remember again our Pastor James, and we thank you for him and for his wife, for his family. Continue to pray that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen their hearts, that you'd refresh them even today. And that, Father, in the weeks to come, Lord, they would be able to return refreshed and invigorated. Lord, you would give our brother much grace as he continues to lead this church and to preach your word. Father, we thank you for him. Lord, we think of those as well in our midst this morning, suffering internally, suffering externally. We ask, Father, for your grace, for your kindness. We pray even as a church that we would grow and learn how to serve and love, how to be broken with others, how to weep with those who weep. So, Lord, we pray for your grace. And we ask you again as well, praying for our country. Father, we we are blessed, Lord, to stand firm on the Word of God. We are watching, O Lord, the corrupted influence of the world just seep out of the pores, out of the mouths of minds of men. And Lord, we know that we understand that we are not battling for mere propositions, proposition aid, or some other political movement. But Lord, you are calling us to stand fast upon the Word of God. So, Lord, we pray you would. Give especially our leaders who have a sense, a taste of morality, and especially those who love Christ, that you give them great vigor to stand fast and to stand firm. And that regardless of the outcome, regardless of the the foolishness of the world and thinking that they can vote on holiness or vote and change the morals of God, I pray, O Lord, that you would help us to stand fast, Lord, as the waves of unrighteousness grow higher and higher. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the church. We trust that as the world and as this country grows darker and darker, the word of the cross and the cross in the church will shine brighter and brighter. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Oh, welcome again this morning to just our time and I've been looking forward to it, praying much for you. Uh, had the privilege to go up Thursday to the Master Seminary where Pastor James had been invited to preach and was able to just hear him preach. He's been had a couple months off. Just he preached the word of God to all these uh, young seminary men who seem to be in the ministry. And he preached from John chapter 13, just on the ordinary pastor. And he preached specifically. You know what what makes an ordinary pastor extraordinary is not so much the things that are tempting, tempting ordinary pastors to be extraordinary, but it's really the extraordinary of humility, uh, the extraordinary of dying to ourselves. These pastors, and then for all of us, just to wash one another's feet. So it was encouraging to see James and Saran and just be able to talk and fellowship with them. And um, I, they're actually still here, and they leave tomorrow. And I, James, they wanted to come to church this morning. Uh, they wanted to come. They felt like that they would uh, disappoint you if they came back. That you've gone so far out of your way to, to send them on their sabbatical. So 
They're going to stay away this morning. Um, then tomorrow they leave for Washington, D.C. for 10 days. And there they'll be a part of a, they're going to be in a uh, Christian counseling conference. A lot of godly men will be uh, speaking the word. And then they'll have some time just to fellowship and see the sights in D.C. And they're going to go to um, Sovereign Grace Church there to Covenant Life and just spend time fellowshipping. And so just continue to pray for them. I think they, they basically have a month left, four weeks. And you've obviously seen how fast this has been going. So let's continue to pray for them. I think it's appropriate as well just to thank Pastor Dan for his uh, very encouraging, very timely messages on heaven and on eternity. Um, I'm confident, you know, as I've talked with many of you and as I've just fellowshiped with you and even heard the stories of you fellowshipping around these truths, that God used these messages on heaven really to wash away our false conceptions and false ideas of heaven and really to fill our mind with the weighty truths these weighty truths of eternity. So I'm, I'm relieved that heaven is not an eternal church service, as, as Sister Dan explained. I'm relieved that uh, I'm not going to have to fly around everywhere playing a harp. I'm not real fond of the harp. Uh, I'm anxious to see what eternity holds, and I'm anxious to have my misconceptions melted away by the intensity of the glory and the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. So I just want to thank you again, Dan, just personally, that, um, and I say that with sincerity, that I have... Uh, thought about these truths. I'm continuing to think about these things. And I thought much just about, you know, how I want to be faithful now, I want to labor now, so that heaven will be all the more intense, that my capacity to enjoy Christ and to enjoy the saints will be even greater as we labor diligently here. Um, I remarked somewhat jokingly to Dan at one point, since he's doing a five-week series on heaven, that means I have to do a four-week series on hell. And he didn't really laugh, and I didn't really laugh either. <laughs> but the reality is that we're going to, uh, we're going to begin a four-week series on the cross-centered church. And no doubt as we approach the cross that we cannot sideline, we cannot relegate the doctrine of hell. And so it will come into focus, it will come in in many ways to the forefront as we are reminded of what the cross has in saved us from. But I want to begin this morning just asking, you know, why not study called the Christ-centered church? I'll share with you more at the end of what will make this study more specific than a study called the cross-centered life. We're not calling it the cross-centered life, the cross-centered church. But why not the Christ-centered church? Or why not the God-centered church? Well, I think one of the greatest things that Pastor James said, I think all year, I think what struck out what struck me is that retreat, when he, uh, he remarked that, that God, though God promised to build His church, though God promises to build the church universal, that the gates of hell will not overcome it, He didn't promise to build Cornerstone Bible Church. And I think that's profound for many reasons. It leaves no room for us, on our part, to be presumptuous upon Christ. Christ will be faithful to us, Christ will be faithful to Cornerstone Bible Church as we know it, as long as we're faithful to Christ as we know Him. We will continue to grow in faithfulness to Jesus. We will continue to seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, or He will continue to build this little church as an extension of His church universal. He will do these things. Or the other possibility is that, though unintentionally, unintentionally, I think, we could slowly begin to lose our focus on who and what the local church is about. Slowly, we could get lost in all the numerical growth. We could get lost in the good ministry and on the lives that are being changed. We could get lost in serving and ministering, reaching out, fellowshipping. We could get so involved in the, the, the aspects or the duties of the church that we could forget what our ultimate singular focus is. I think that you would agree that the danger for our church, the danger for Cornerstone Bible Church, is not that we would outright abandon Jesus Christ. The danger is more subtle. That if we are not careful, we will keep our eyes on the good things and yet take our eyes off the best thing, the most important thing. So it's important to, as we pro progress this morning, to understand that this is not a new struggle. This is an old struggle, what I'm referring to. 
It's highly important to know that the temptations that we as a church are facing and will face, that are nothing new. That Christ Himself had warned other churches of the same dangers long ago. That Christ had reminded other churches that though His church would be established universally, the promise of establishing local churches was dependent upon them remaining faithful to His truth, remaining faithful to Him. The truths Christ relayed to those seven churches are just as fresh and potent for us today. If we take our eyes off the very foundation of what the church is established upon, we as a church will ourselves fail to remain established. If we take our eyes off of what the church is established upon, then we will inevitably become like them. And what I'm referring to, in essence, is the churches in the book of Revelation. If you'll turn with me for some time, if you'll turn with me for a few moments to Revelation chapter 2. I don't look particularly at our Lord's words to the church of Ephesus, to a specific local church. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus... Right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds which you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we're not going to study this uh, entire text this morning. This this sermon really is uh, foundational. It is an introductory sermon. It's not necessarily an exposition of a specific text. But I want to spend a few moments just looking at a few important aspects of our Lord's words here. First, I want to look at the word "no." Right. Just. Reflect here that Christ, He knows His church. He knows churches. He knows what's going on inside the local church. He knows what's going on inside this church. He's keenly aware. He's perceptively aware. The word know here depicts absolute clarity of the external circumstances as well as a piercing gaze of the internal motives. Christ sees the externals and the internals. And we want to look at these two aspects for a moment. First, Christ shows them that He sees with absolute clarity the externals. He knows their deeds. There are two aspects to their deeds that Christ remarks on. And I would just say that they're offensive and they're defensive. The first aspect regarding their offensive work, He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. That first word, deeds, toils, it's the, it's the overall category which is further defined by the two facets of toil and perseverance. The facet toil describes their outward activity. Right? They were a toiling church. The word toil originally describes someone in desperate grief who would weep and wail and vigorously beat their chest. It was someone in great agony internally and was manifest externally. Metaphorically, it's used here by Christ to note not so much the actual exertion which the person makes, but the weariness which they are experiencing from that exertion. The great weariness that they are experiencing from their ministry, from their serving. The facet of perseverance, or as the ESV says, patient endurance, is related to the inner struggles they faced in ministry because of external pressure. Now, we're looking at here the church of Ephesus. Um, 
We know a lot about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia. And as you know, it was also the most pagan and immoral as well. Ephesus was the center of the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known as the Roman goddess Diana. At that time, when Paul planted the church, and most likely as well when Christ speaks these words, at that time the idolatrous image of Artemis was one of the most sacred, if not the most sacred objects of worship in the world. So we understand modern day that there are thousands and thousands of people who will who will flock to Mecca, right, to worship the Kaaba, the black stone. Well, during this time, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would travel to Ephesus to worship this goddess and to partake of religious rituals in the temple. This, this goddess, this statue Artemis, was a vulgar statue. And the religious acts which accompanied her were equally vulgar. Artemis was housed at that time in the seventh wonder of the world. It was a 420 foot long by 220 foot wide temple, right? It's a massive structure built all manually. It housed this temple along with thousands of temple prostitutes, both men and women. In Acts 19, we learn that the result of people's turning to the gospel in Ephesus was threatened, was threatening the religion of Artemis. So that this riot occurs. Now why that's important is that this is the very beginning of the foundation of this church. This church was, was really birthed in the midst of hostility against the gospel. And we can, we can imagine and we can assume, even as our Lord writes this, that there was at this time great hostility, external pressure against these men and women and their love for Jesus Christ. We are ourselves, perhaps I believe, going to face more and more external opposition from the outside world. As believers begin to stand more and more for the Word of God, as the Word of God begins to define more and more moral issues for us, like what we vote for, the hostility of the world is going to become greater and greater. And once the government begins to sanction, and once the government begins to decide what's right and what's wrong, and when when they begin to call evil good and good evil, and the Christian faithfully stands firm, calling evil, evil, and good, good, persecution will come. And I believe, whether I believe it or not doesn't matter, but we will probably most likely begin to face opposition, even as a church. And that's what's happened in Ephesus. As they stood on the gospel, as they stood for church, as they stood for truth, they were facing opposition Christ says to them, though, in the midst of this, He says, but you st- I know you're standing fast. I know you're standing fast. I know you're remaining faithful. Christ says to the church, you're a hard-working church. I know you're a hard-working church. You're, you're ministering to yourselves internally. You're standing fast to the pressures externally. And I commend you for these things. I commend you. Can you imagine Christ standing here at this pulpit, talking to Cornerstone Bible Church, saying, I commend you. I commend you for standing firm on the truth. I commend you for your faithfulness and your diligence in ministry. And he continues to commend them. He says as well, you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. Here Christ, He commends them for their defensive work. Their defensive work in, in, in protecting the local church. In essence, He's telling them that, that because you love truth, because you love holiness and righteousness, you cannot tolerate wicked, perverse men. These men tried to come in the church. They tried to wreak havoc on the church, not by coming in, in direct hostility, but they tried to come in as insurgents. They tried to come in and, and look like sheep, but they were wolves. And Jesus says to the church, but you held them to the standard. You scrutinized their lives with the Word of God. You put them to the test. Which means the Ephesians would not allow men to stand in judgment of God's Word, but they held up God's Word in judgment of men. And He highly commends them for this. 
Now, I believe that by God's grace, He would highly commend us for this. By all appearances and by all standards of the Master Seminary or Grace Community Church or Cornerstone Bible Church or East Bay Baptist Church, what we have here is the perfect church. They're diligent in ministry. They're faithful in doctrine. They're holding fast to the gospel. They're holding fast to the word of truth. And Christ commends them for these things. And yet there was more for our Lord to say to the church in Ephesus. Remember earlier we defined the word no as depicting absolute clarity of the external circumstances as well as a piercing gaze of the internal motives. Now our Lord shares His insight and His, his clarity, His precise vision of the Ephesians' internal motives. After our Lord explains to them and commends them for all their diligence, you would expect to hear, so, you've done this, and so, let me reward you. Or you've done all these things, and so, instead, Christ says, I commend you for all these things, but, but, strong adversative. There are all these good things that you are doing, but there is a gray, a black cloud hanging over it all. But I, I have this against you. In other words, this is personal. I personally have something against you. You're holding to the, to the doctrines. You're holding to the faithfulness of ministry. But I personally have something against you. And when the church heard this, they must have thought, what could it be? Our doctrine is sharp. We hold our pastors and teachers to the high standard of the Word of God. We're faithfully involved in gospel ministry and in building up the church. What could possibly put a damper on such a state? And Christ's answer is shocking because He says to them, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. My first response is, how can this be possible? How can a church be ministering zealously and, and doctrinally precise, and yet at the same time lose and leave their first love? How is this possible? He says to them, in essence, that in the midst of all that you, have, you are doing, you have forgotten why you are doing it. The church in Ephesus had forgotten that the church is not first and foremost about what they do, but why they do it and who they are doing it for. They had forgotten their first love, their love for God and their love for His Son, Jesus Christ. One of the most saddening stories that I've ever heard in the realm of Christian giants is the story of the founder of World Vision the founder of World Vision, a man by the name of Bill Pierce. One of Pierce's daughters, Marilee Pierce, writes about her father's ministry and her father's family in her book, Days of Glory, Seasons of Night. On the ministry front, Bill Pierce had great zeal. It seems like as I read about him, zeal that matched the Apostle Paul. His constant prayer was, let me burn out for God. This man was relentless and tireless in his preaching of Christ and his ministry to the needy. He began as a young missionary to China, where many came to Christ through his preaching. Uh, from there, he began trying to minister to the poor and organizing efforts to help relieve orphans in their distress. And he is in many ways the father of adoption in America. He began... Uh, campaigning and, and, and seeking out, going to many, many churches in America and, and pleading with them to adopt orphans from China. In 1950, he founded World Vision, which is still one of the greatest uh, organizational aids in, in, in the world. Christian organizations helping the needy and the poor. This was a great man of zeal. And when asked by Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Grant asked him, how do you shake people out of their complacency? Pierce said to them that he had become a part of their suffering. I've become a part of their suffering. I feel that child's blindness. I feel the mother's grief. It is all too real to me when I stand before an audience. It's not something that can be faked. A pastor wrote concerning Mr. Pierce that he prayed more earnestly and importunately than any el anyone else I had ever known. 
It was as though prayer burned within him. Bob Pierce functioned from a broken heart. And yet, the biography goes on to explain that though this man had a radical ambition for ministry, it also led him to a radical abandonment of his family. He was gone from his family for almost most of his life, sometimes up to ten months to a year. He wrote in his journals, I've made an agreement with God. I'll take care of the helpless little lambs overseas if he'll take care of mine at home. In 1968, while on a tour of Asia, his daughter Sharon reached him by phone. She asked him, begged him if he would come back to the States, that she desperately needed his help. Sadly, he refused on the grounds that there was too much ministry to be done, and instead he flew to Vietnam. His wife, Lorraine, instead immediately started home. But by the time she arrived, Sharon had already tried to commit suicide. Later that year, she tried again and succeeded. At the time of his daughter's death, Pierce was so overcome by ill health from his constant travels that he had to be hospitalized in Switzerland where he was again separate from his family for a year. The following year, he took over a small hunger organization that became Samaritan's Purse. His wife, so distraught, so emotionally, so separated from her husband, decided to separate legally from her husband. His daughter, Marilee, in September 1978, says that her father was badly crippled in his mind. He was frequently unclear, selfishly ambitious. Just once in September 1978, the family was able to gather for an evening of reconciliation. Four days later, Pierce died completely alone. Commenting on this story, author Larry J. Michaels wrote, Pierce is an example of what can happen when a leader, if he is careless, becomes so engrossed in his own personal calling that he fails in his ministry to his own family. In essence, then, Mr. Pierce loved ministry, but he didn't love his family. And in essence, that is what is happening in Ephesus. The Ephesians loved ministry and they loved truth. But they were not loving Christ. The church of Ephesus had become a corporate Bill Pierce. They were so lost in ministry, they lost sight of what life was all about. The God who had saved these people for himself through his son was being replaced by duties and doctrines. He was being replaced by people who had lost their own first love. He was being replaced by people who loved their own labors more than they loved God. And I think what's fair to say is they didn't mean to. They didn't intend to. They didn't try to do this. And yet, through all their good works, the church in Ephesus was in danger of turning into the Tower of Babel. They were in danger of turning ministry into a monument for themselves. They were building higher and higher and higher and yet their love for Christ was sinking lower and lower and lower. So Christ calls them to repent and to do the deeds they did at first. Now, I think it's fair to, to mark here that Christ says, repent and do the deeds. So what does repentance entail? What is He saying? Turn your hearts back. Turn your hearts back to Christ. Fix your hearts back upon the Father. Be refreshed and be reminded of what is to fuel all that you're doing. They needed to set their eyes back upon the blazing glory of God in Christ. Now, to jump to our, ourselves for a moment, it would seem then that for our purposes... Let me, let me just make this clear. I'm not saying that we are the church of Ephesus, okay? I'm saying that we will be and perhaps are being tempted to this route. So we need to be aware of this temptation. And we need to learn how and be aware of how to fight against what the Ephesians succumb to. And to do that, we're going to enter a study called the, the Christ-centered, the cross-centered church. And it would seem that perhaps we could do a study called the Christ-centered church or the God-centered church. 
But the truth is that the only way to become a Christ-centered church or a God-centered church is to what? Is to be a cross-centered church. I would go as far as to say that we need to become a cross-centered church because we have a cross-centered God and a cross-centered Christ. Now, let me stop for a moment before I continue on and explain what it means for God to be cross-centered and before I explain what it means for Christ to be cross-centered. Let me just clarify what it means to be cross-centered. Right? But I, I don't want to assume, I know most of you, right, for most of you, you're like, Marcus, all you, every time you get up there and preach, it's always about the cross. Did you learn anything else in seminary? No. Okay, I didn't. I'm, just, I'm hiding behind a few texts because my Hebrew and Greek are poor. But what do we mean when we refer to the cross? When we say cross-centered, we talk about the cross, this cross, that. We're not simply talking about the wooden structure upon which Christ was, was put to death. When we say the cross, we're referring to all that is entailed in the gospel. Namely, that all men are dead in sin and full of hostility against a holy and righteous God. That the wrath of God is directed against all mankind because of their unrighteousness. But God graciously sent His Son to bear the full wrath that we deserved. We are referring to Christ upon the cross as He bore our sins in His body on that cross. As He bore the full force of the wrath of God, the Father, on the cross. Christ took our judgment and condemnation upon Himself on the cross. He paid for our sins, was sacrificed in our stead. The sins that we committed, the sins that I committed this morning, the sins that I will commit this afternoon, the sins that you will commit this afternoon and this evening, those sins were laid and, and pierced Christ on the cross. He paid for all of those sins. He was judged as if you and I were on that tree. He paid for our sins. He purchased and sealed our pardon and our redemption and our reconciliation to the Father through the cross. So when I say that God is cross-centered, or when I say that Christ is cross-centered, or when I say that we should be a cross-centered church, I'm saying that we should be gospel-centered because God is gospel-centered. It means this. That all of God's gracious and merciful dealings with mankind come through and only through the cross. I mean that the cross is the singular way that He has shown redemptive kindness and grace. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, His singular love was manifest at the cross and all of history was leading up to this moment. Again, all of history was leading up to this moment. From the very beginning of the fall, every moment was leading up to the cross. Genesis 3.15 God hints at the gospel, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And from that point of the fall onward, all of God's dealings with all people were based upon grace that though free to us would be costly to him. And so from Genesis 3.15 on, we always have before us the continuous revelation that someone is going to do something absolutely stunning in order to pay for our sins and reconcile us to God. We see this as we move on, even we're skipping over so much, but as we move on even to, to the Passover in Exodus 12. The most profound statement of the Exodus is in Exodus 12.13 when God says, I will see the blood When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Why the blood? We must ask when we hit that test. Why? Why will he pass over when he sees the blood? The answer to that question was given to the Israelites only a few weeks later in the wilderness. And we can sum up the entire sacrificial system in this singular answer in Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. What is it, blood? That is death. That which was living must be put to death in 
ability to atone for sins. To atone means to make a sufficient payment for sins. And from this truth of the necessity of the blood to atone for sins flows the entire sacrificial system of the slaughtering of bulls and goats and lambs. But, but with the perpetual sacrifice of animals came the perpetual reminder that there seemed to be no sufficient sacrifice to make full atonement for sins. So the sacrificial system left left humans, left men and women crying out, what can wash away my sins? What can wash away my stain? As we move through the Old Testament Scriptures, the stain of sin and the depth of depravity continue to reveal the inability of mere bulls and and goats to make atonement for the sins of men. While the sacrificial system was unable to fully redeem, God continued to reveal that someone greater would come who would make full and final atonement. Now, time does not allow us to continue to go through all of the Old Testament where we look at the judges and we see their ineptitude, their inability to, to redeem, to, to save, and to help. Or as we move on even to, to the, the minor prophets and even to the major prophets. Perhaps we see in the major prophets as well, no more and more clearly of the the perfect atonement to come, as in Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, 13 declares that Christ, that the Messiah is going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Ever looked at that at the beginning, Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, the Messiah is going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then he goes on to explain what this lifting up is, what this exaltation is. What is it? It's death. It's being crushed. It's being pierced. It's being slain. All the Old Testament is pointing to the cross. All of its movement in Old Testament history was leading up to what Paul described to us in Galatians 4.4, where he says, But when the fullness of time came when all the culmination of everything that I'm doing is ready, I sent forth my son. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul is saying in Galatians 4.4 that God brought all of the Old Testament preparation to fruition in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus arrives upon this guilty sod in the form of a man, a true and living man of flesh and blood, just as we are, capable of all that we are, of eating and drinking and laughing and living, and most of all, and most important of all, of dying. And for 30 years, this man, Jesus, was preparing for one moment. Not the moment when he, be, he would be crowned as the king of the universe, but the moment when he would be crowned with thorns and fastened to a cross. And so Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those under the law. For this goal, Christ labored and loved. For three years, He taught adamantly and clearly that His goal was the cross and that nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth would deter Him from going to the cross. The cross was not simply another miraculous act that Jesus performed to prove His divinity. It was the singular reason that He came to this earth. And so again, we ask, why? Why? Because His death on the cross was the singular act that could save sinners from hell and reconcile them to God. So again, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here again at the cross, we see the singular act of God's love for the world. We understand that He could be just and pronounce His sentence upon us. He could be holy and keep Himself separated from us. He could be righteous and send sinners to hell. But He could be to us love only by sending His Son to the cross. And so in this way, God is cross-centered. Because if God wills to save men, the only way to do this is through the cross. Now, 
Here's one I want you to track with me. You may be asking right now, are, Marcus, are you saying that the death of Christ was the only possible way for God to save sinners? And my answer is yes. I am saying, and I believe, and I'll show you, the Bible says, the only possible way for God to redeem fallen humanity, sinners of flesh and blood, was through the death of Jesus Christ. I'm not, what I'm not saying is that God had to save sinners. But what I'm saying is, when God conceived and determined that He would save sinners, the only way to do so was through the death of His Son. There was no other possible nor conceivable way for God to reconcile sinners to Himself. The entirety of the book of Hebrews has this truth at its core. Why does Hebrews chapter 1 begin with the deity of Christ and talk about Him as fully God and fully man and then go on to His ascension and sitting down at the right hand of God? Why all this in just a couple verses at the beginning? Because He is preparing the way to explain that no one else can atone for sins. No one else could die to pay for sins. Why does Hebrews 1.9 say this? But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Why did He become a little lower than the angels? What does this mean? It means He became a man. And why did He become a man? So He could taste death. Why? Because only a perfect God could make full atonement and this could be accomplished only if God took on flesh. Apart from Christ, there is no atonement, there is no redemption, there is no other way. Hebrews 2.14, it says this same thing. He continues to propound upon this truth. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Who could render death powerless? None. No one but Christ. And He could only do so by becoming a man. Why? Hebrews 2.17 tells us, Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The only way to make propitiation is through blood, is through death. And the only one that can make this is Christ. And the only way He can do this is by becoming a man. And I could go on and on through the book of Hebrews and show you that the whole basis We understand the theme of Hebrews, right? It's the supremacy, the superiority, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But the author is is explaining to us that what makes Him superior isn't just that He is Christ, but that as Christ He became a man. And not that just He became a man, but that He became a man. And in becoming a man, it enabled Him to die so that He could atone, that He could pay for sins. And what makes Him supreme is that there is no one else, there is no probable, capable plan in all of the universe. God is saying, I cannot come up with, I cannot conceive of another plan that can atone for the infinite offenses against me. There is no other plan. The cross is the singular love of God towards us. It was the only way for God to save sinners. And this is what gives the action of the cross its supremacy. The cross is the supreme act of love and it is the supreme work of God. 
Therefore, the cross is central to the work of God. Therefore, the cross is central to the work of Christ. Therefore, the cross is central to the function of the church. The truth is that God had to pay premium price because our sins were a premium offense. There was nothing else to satisfy the infinite wrath of God except the infinite righteousness of Christ. There was nothing else able nor conceivable to remove the infinite stain of our sin against a holy God except the pure and holy blood, the death of His Son. Think about this for a moment. How long is eternity? How long is eternity? How long does the Bible say God's judgment upon sinners will last? Yet how long did it take for Christ to atone for the sins of men? Somewhat of a paradoxical question. My point in asking this question is that the cross did not limit the term of God's wrath. It quenched it. Jesus Christ quenched the infinite wrath of God that was directed against you, that was directed against me. He entirely bore all of it. He completely, for us, has extinguished God's righteous fury against us through His death on the cross. It is the supreme sacrifice that exemplifies the greatness of our Savior. In fact, what is arguably the greatest title for Jesus is established on the work of the cross. The greatest title for our Lord is established on the work of His cross. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus with many different titles, many different names. Seven times the Son of God is called the Christ. Fourteen times He is called Jesus But the overarching name and title for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is the Lamb. Thirty times Christ is called the Lamb. Why the Lamb? Because He was sacrificed. Because He was offered up on the cross. Because at the cross He quenched the wrath of God for us. And because for all eternity, the greatest impetus to worship Jesus Christ is not simply that He is God, or not simply that He became a man, that He took on flesh, but that He took on sin, that He took on death, that He took on hell. And yet what evokes our praise and our worship is that in taking on that, He quenched the wrath of God and rose again to the right hand of the Father, proving to us that the Father's wrath against us is extinguished and that we are reconciled to Him. And therefore, we can listen to five messages on heaven and know with great confidence and assurance that when we take our final breath, we will go to the Lord and be with Him forever. And this is why it is Christ and His cross that will renew our first love. And this is why it is being a cross-centered church that will maintain our first love. Saints of CBC, I want to say to you that it is possible, but it is unlikely that we would become like the church at Pergamum in Revelation where some fell into false teaching, resulting in idolatry and immorality in the local church. Though possible, it is not likely that we would become like the church of Thyatira, who began following an evil prophetess who taught the deep things of Satan. Though possible, it is not likely that we will become like the church of Sardis, apparently dead in serving Christ, knowing only a listless and useless existence. Though possible, we pray that we will not become like the church of Laodicea, whose riches and wealth led them to utter pride and self-dependence to such an extent that their proud hearts said, we need nothing. So Christ said, I will spew you out of my mouth. We would certainly be guilty of arrogance if we said that we will never become like those churches. But I think that I can say that if we continue by the grace of God upon the course we are following, by the grace of God we will avoid much much of that folly. But there is one church out of all seven churches that I believe we would be most tempted to become conformed to, and that is the church of Ephesus. Doctrinal, capable, zealous, and by all appearances, the model church. Cornerstone, here is a church that we can compare ourselves with, 
We are exploding by all appearances. God's gracious hand is upon us. You're fervent in serving. You're fervent in ministry. You're, you're zealous in guarding the truths of Scripture. You, by the grace of God, have conformed to the high calling of God's Word to this church. But you must be careful that you do not make all the business and the flourishing ministry around you the standard by which you measure yourselves. Because this is what the church of Ephesus did. She became all light and no heat. She looked blazing on the outside, but there was no fire on the inside. Instead of being the passionate bride of Christ, she turned into a heartless robot. So saints, we've said this before. The only difference between us and these other churches, or the only difference between us and the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's only the cross. It's only the cross. And when I say only, I do not mean only as in a small margin. But I mean that only by all appearances, they look and at times even act the same. But when it comes down to it, there is an internal and an eternal transformation that has taken place all because of the cross. And it is the cross only that makes this vast separation between heartless religion and blazing Christianity. If we lose focus of the cross, we cut out the heart of the church. If you take away the cross, you gut our entire religion. And this is why we embark on a study entitled The Cross-Centered Church. Not the cross-centered life. Not the cross-centered man. Not the cross-centered woman. In other words, the focus is not on you and me as individuals. But the focus is upon us as a church corporately. As a corporate body. Notice that in Revelation 2, Christ is is not speaking to Christians individually. He is speaking to the church corporately. And He is not speaking to the church generally or universally, but He is speaking to particular local churches. He is addressing the local church in Ephesus. And He wants to address the local church of Cornerstone. And in talking to these churches individually... He is therefore saying, I have promised to build my church, but not your church. If you do not renew your first love, Ephesus, you will not know you cannot be built. And so we come to this study not simply as individuals sitting in the congregation, but as a corporate body, as individuals who make up this local church called Cornerstone Bible Church. And so my goal, therefore, is not simply to tell you to be a cross-centered church, but to show you how. Jesus Christ Himself has made the greatest practical provision for the local church to be cross-centered in the ordinance of communion. There are two ordinances for the church. There are two ordinances that we as a local church practice, and only two. Baptism and communion. Now, baptism is done in the context of the local church. And it's focused on the cross. It identifies a repentant sinner having been reconciled to God and therefore he he finds himself being immersed in the water, being equated with the death of Christ and being raised up with Jesus Christ, being reconciled to God, being raised from the dead, being the new birth. But baptism, though an ordinance for the local church, is is still an ordinance for individuals. And it's done as an individual before the local church. But communion is fully corporate. It's fully corporate. It's a corporate ordinance involving all who belong to Christ. And this ordinance is not something that you do in your quiet time or with your family or with your small group or it's not something that you do as an individual before the church. It is something that we as individuals do together as a church. One very practical way in which we as a church may lose sight of our first love is to lose sight of the gift and the provision of communion. Christ gave us His table so that we would always remember Him and His cross. 
communion then is the church being cross-centered. It is the church being cross-centered. But as all of you know, even communion itself can become simply another event, an almost lifeless religious ceremony in which the greatness of Christ and His death on the cross loses its potency and its sweetness. So to this end, we are going in the next two weeks to do a study on communion on the Lord's Supper. The first study next week that we're going to look at is entitled The Provision of Communion. And there we are going to walk up the steps with the disciples into the upper room. And there in Matthew 26, we are going to listen and we are going to learn, we are going to watch Christ make the cross the center of the local church. And we're going to watch Him as he, as he breaks the bread and as He distributes the cup to His disciples and in essence is telling them, I'm leaving, I'm going to the cross and I'm ascending to my Father. But you must make sure that the cross always stays at the center of the local church. And through the, the bread and through the cup, you will do so. You can do so. And so we will look at the provision of communion. And then the following week, we'll move on to look at not just the provision of communion, but look at the practice of communion. And there we'll study 1 Corinthians 11 and learn how, how communion affects us, how it allows us to keep the cross center, and how we are to practice this cross-centered ordinance. Communion is a mixture of sobriety and joy. And effective communion is a result of deep truths stirring up the inner man. For all of us to come together to honor God and His Son at the cross means we need to do some serious self-examination. We will learn that the Lord's Supper is a serious time and that there are even direct implications resulting in how we conduct ourselves at the table. And in our final study, in our final study, we will seek to become more cross-centered by going to the very crucifixion itself. In our final study, we don't want to talk about being cross-centered. We want to just simply spend an hour being cross-centered. We want to be reminded of the great sacrifice that was made, the great purchase, the great exchange, the great horrors, the great mysteries that went on at Golgotha, the place of the school. Nothing, I believe, preaches more loudly that God intends the cross to be the center of the church than the fact that four times in, in each gospel, four times the cross is pronounced. And if you want to add Isaiah 53 as the fifth gospel of the crucifixion of Christ, five times the gospel explicates the cross. Five times the word of God screams to us, the cross is the center. May this study this morning, this introduction, stir our hearts, remind us again, we cannot get bored with the cross. We cannot too much study the cross but that God Himself intends for the cross to be the central of the local church. And God intends for all of eternity for us to worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before You again in reverence and in awe the superiority of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only is it the only way, is it the only way and the only truth and the only life, but it was the only way and the only truth and the only life conceivable to save sinners from your wrath. We praise you again, Lamb of God. The cross is not simply a manifestation of the love of the Father, but it is the singular manifestation of the love of the Father. It is the only manifestation, the only possible and practical manifestation of the love of the Father towards us. And we thank you. And our hearts are brought low again. We are brought low before the precious blood. We are brought low before the precious Lamb of God. And we confess that even after hearing all these truths, our hearts are still numb and are still distracted. And so we are in this life ever and always pleading and crying out for you to remove coldness, to remove heartless orthodoxy. Help us as a church to renew our first love.
Lord, you speak these truths that you spoke to the Ephesians to us this morning. Help us even individually to repent. To repent and to turn to you. And then to do the deeds that we did at first with the motives and the affections that we did them. Let us be a cross-centered. Let Cornerstone Bible Church be in every way a cross-centered church. And Lord, in your grace, let us be snuffed out. Let us be burnt out in this life and stand before you for all of eternity, ringing in our ears, well done, good and faithful servant. Remind us for all of eternity that by your grace we remained faithful in our first love to you because of your first, your faithful love to us. We thank you again for the Lamb of God who takes away and has taken away the sin of the world. In your name we pray.